All right, hey, we're in Revelation chapter 2. Um, as you're in Revelation 2, let me kind of give you some background on what's going on. Um, we are looking at the seven churches of Revelation. Uh, we're walking through the seven specific churches Jesus spoke to and addresses. Jesus speaks directly and personally to these seven churches. He loves them. He knows what's going on. He sees the good things. He sees the bad things, and he speaks into it. And what we see is Jesus loves his church deeply and intimately enough to really address what's going on. And so let me say this as we talk about revelation. I've said this before. The word revelation simply means the unveiling. The unveiling. That's what it means. This is the unveiling of Jesus. Here's John, the disciple of Jesus, most likely around 90 years old, exiled to the island called Patmos, and there he encounters Jesus. And Revelation chapter 1 begins with John seeing Jesus. Keep in mind, John loved Jesus. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. He knew Jesus, walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus. But he gets a fresh revelation of Jesus in Revelation 1. John had some things to learn about Jesus. It shows us that you can never be too old, too young. We still have a lot of things to learn about Jesus. John saw a fresh perspective of Jesus. We knew Jesus as the Lamb. We knew Jesus as that suffering servant who came to die for our sins. But Revelation shows Jesus to us as that conquering king who comes to rule and to reign. And church, here's why I'm obviously, you know, prefacing with this every week. Listen, I would love for our church, like I'm praying, God, give us a fresh revelation of Jesus. Like I want us to see Jesus differently. I want us to see him in this way, in Revelation's kind of a way. I would love for us to see the person of Jesus, maybe in a unique way where God like refreshes our heart, our perspective of who it is we gather around, who we worship, who we sing to, who we pray to. I would love for God to really just speak and move in our lives about the person of Jesus. Like church, I think the best thing that could happen to any church is having a revelation of Jesus. Like Jesus, come, reveal yourself, speak into our hearts. What is it you wanna do? What does he wanna accomplish? And I, we're going through revelation because this is the revelation of Jesus. If you want and need, which we all need, a fresh perspective, a heavenly perspective of Jesus, Revelation is a great book to turn to because this is called the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus. And that's what it is. So as we're walking through these seven churches, remember there's seven churches Jesus is specifically speaking to, and that is Ephesus, then Smyrna. Today we're looking at Pergamum or Pergamos or Pergamon, kind of different ways to say it, then Thyatira, then the fifth church is Sarda, then Philadelphia, and then Laodicea. These are the seven churches Jesus is speaking to as a whole, and we're looking at a third church today. Now, if you've been with us, let's review a little bit. Ephesus was the church that had a great head knowledge of Jesus, but it says they left their first love. So they knew a lot about Jesus. They're all head, you could say, and no heart. Jesus says, uh, good job, you have good doctrine, but you've left your first love. Smyrna was the church that was being persecuted. It was the suffering church. They were financially poor even, but Jesus says, I know you're poor, but you are rich. So you have the church that left their first love. You have the suffering, the poor church, but the rich church. We talked a lot about persecution last week with Smyrna. And then today we see with Pergamum, or Pergamos, or however you want to put it, a lot of different ways, but what we're going to see today is the compromising church. It was the church that compromised in its theology, in its beliefs, in its practices, and how it lived out the gospel. There's a compromise in the way Pergamum did life. And here's the point of this. Um, listen, as we study these seven churches, I feel like this is just a mere a mirror to our souls, to us individually. This is a mirror for us collectively as a church. Like as we study these seven churches, I believe the Holy Spirit is trying to reveal different things to us. There are times where I feel like, man, God, have I left my first love? You know, can I truly relate to Smyrna? Am I willing to face anything for the gospel of Jesus? But God, with Pergamum, am I compromising in any way that you want to correct, you want to speak into, you want to redirect? 
You know, we're going to look at Thyatira, this corruption within the church. We're going to get Sardis, the dead church. The reason why I'm, I'm getting into this is every church, I think, can speak to us a different way. And my prayer is that God would correct us and guide us, encourage us, love on us, uh, challenge us as we walk through these seven churches of Revelation. That God would speak into us. And if you're tired, like just it's week three, it's already been heavy. I know there's four more weeks. We, okay, we're going to do it. We can do it. But it is a beautiful, beautiful message to the church as a whole. Because over and over again, Jesus says, listen, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus is like, the Spirit is speaking to the churches. Are you listening? Church, for all of us, are we listening? The Spirit, I believe, is speaking to us through God's Word. Are we listening? Are we opening up our hearts, our minds, our, our perspectives and say, Jesus, speak into this, correct us. Amen? So I want, us, I want God to speak to us, man. I want him to like move in our church. I want him to correct where he wants to correct. I want to be a Jesus church, a church that Jesus looks on and goes, this is, uh, this is a church I'm well pleased in. So we want to be that church. Now, I've kind of shared this a few times, two times, the third time I'm going to do this, maybe the last time, we'll see. There's a, a common flow to the letter, all right? So there's a common feel, a common layout. Uh, every letter has, we'll look at, put it up here, a destination. There's always speaking to a specific leader or the church itself. There's a destination, the city. Number two, there's always a description of Jesus. Jesus always describes himself in the way that church needs to hear. And it's fun to kind of see why does Jesus describe himself that way to that church? It's very personal. And he's, he's very specific in why he does that. Then you're going to see a commendation or praise. For the most part, Jesus is like, hey guys, you're doing this really well. Keep it up. All right. Uh, every church has some sort of praise except for Sardis, the dead church, and Laodicea, the lukewarm church. Every church, Jesus has something good to say about. Uh, we don't want to be one of those two churches, just FYI. Uh, then there's some sort of admonition or rebuke. Usually there's some sort of rebuke. Like, I have this against you, though. You're doing this really well, but I have this against you. And then there's a warning that comes after that. Uh, we might see this, like, encouragement or a warning saying, and if you don't repent, this will happen. So he calls them out, then he warns them, like, if you keep on this course, if you keep going in that direction, this is going to happen. And then you're going to see sometimes there's like an illusion, meaning Jesus will say, like, I will come to you quickly. There's some sort of reference to his coming. But lastly, there's this promise. Every single church, all seven churches, Jesus is like, listen, if you, if you repent, if you put me back on the throne of your life, then I will do this. And there's a promise. And again, Jesus is really clear. It's not just to these churches. He says, if you have an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so I believe Jesus is saying, this is for us. If you endure to the end, this is a promise for you. So let's just read. We're looking at the third church, the church of Pergamum, uh, and we're going to read in verse 12. So Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. Let's just read this church all the way through, then we'll pray. What does Jesus say to the church? Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. Here's what Jesus says. <clears throat> and to the angel, or the messenger, or the leader, to the angel of the church in Pergamos writes, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast in my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, listen, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Let's just pray and invite the Lord to speak and move into our place. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for this reminder. Jesus, this is your church. Um, Lord, we ask that you just guide our time. You'd guide my words, that the meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth would be well-pleasing to you. Jesus, we just ask that you'd correct us. We ask that you'd speak to us, that you'd encourage us. Jesus, you know your church, you love your church, and thank you for speaking to, into your church. And so, Lord, we want to hear from you now and just uh, do whatever it is you want to do with us. We ask this, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. So let's talk about compromise. You know, you and I live in a world that is filled with compromise. And compromise isn't always a, a bad thing. Sometimes it's a good thing. You know, when you're newly married, compromise is like your best friend. Compromise can be a really good thing when you're newly married. You kind of have to learn to compromise on almost everything, like on what to watch, you know, like should we watch this or that? Like I like to usually win that one, but I don't know. But you can compromise on what to watch, right? You have to compromise on just like what to wear. Like I'll get dressed up and my wife's like, no, I don't like that, wear that. I'm like, okay, like, I want that. We have to compromise on what to wear. Uh, we might have to compromise on what to eat, what to eat, where to eat, how much to eat. Uh, but there's a lot of compromise within a ma in marriage. And I mean, there's so many different examples that I think are necessary and good. Compromise can be a beautiful and necessary thing. Like if you're a parent of children, uh, you know that sometimes you do need to compromise. You know, it's, it's hard at times to parents and there's sometimes you gotta go, okay, if you do this, then this will happen. Like it's okay to have compromise. I think of like the comedian who jokes about this. He's like talking about compromising with your children. He's like, listen, if you stay in your room and go to sleep, I'll give you anything you want. What do you want, a helicopter to Cuba? Anything, just stay in your room. And I, I love that. And, you know, sometimes there are times we need to compromise. But a lot of other times, compromise, though it's small, can grow and lead to a lot of pain. Uh, sometimes small compromise can bring a lot of damage, can do a lot of harm. You know, if you've ever dieted or walked through a season of dieting and you're kind of like, okay, I might just have one bite of this Oreo cheesecake and like before you know it, you're like, where'd it go? Like there's things like that that can happen. You know, we just did a, a two-week fast, right, as a church, two-week fast. And um, for me, if you know me, I have the biggest like sweet tooth ever. My mom would like make brownies for, for dinner. Like that was my family. All right. So I just have a huge sweet tooth. And so for me, I'm like, all right, no sugar, no sweets. And so I think in the two weeks, my wife, she got bought like a bag of those uh, Reese's, holiday like Reese's, like uh, there's a difference. Uh, the holiday Reese's, for, like Valentine's or Easter or Christmas, like the extra thick, extra peanut butter. I don't know if you've seen those. So she bought a bag of those and then she bought like a six pack of the bigger version. And I, I thought I'd have one or two and I'm like, I'll just have one, maybe two. And then uh, the bag was gone. And then I had half of the six pack. <laughs> Listen, don't judge. All right, that was my, and I read later it was like 2,200 calories just alone in that bag and then three more. Um, now, that's, that was my compromise, right? But sometimes compromise, you go, oh, not a big deal, whatever, small. Like here, there, whatever, and you go, man, it leads to a lot. Like a, lot of, a small compromise can lead to a lot of compromise. Sometimes when you compromise in small things, you think it's not a big deal, but it'll lead to really big deals, big issues. See, the Bible is filled with stories of men and women who compromised. I think of the story of Lot, right? Lot is in Sodom and Gomorrah. The angels go to him and say, hey, Lot, listen, destruction's coming to your city, get out. We're giving you a chance, run, get your family, don't grab anything, don't even look back and get out. And as they're fleeing the city and judgment's coming upon Sodom and Gomorrah, remember the story of Lot's wife who looked back just with longing eyes, but momentarily looked back and the scriptures say she turned into a pillar of salt, right? Just a little look, there's not much, 
didn't even go back and grab anything, but just a little look. I think of Samson, the story of Samson and Delilah, one of the best stories, one of the funniest stories to me. If you read Judges 16, and remember Samson's there, and he's with Delilah, and she's like, Samson, where's the secret source of your strength? Just tell me, because if I were to bind you, and I, I just want to kind of afflict you. She used the word afflict you. And he's like, okay, well, if you know the story, he's like, just take seven cords and wrap around my body, and if you do that, I cannot break free. So he wakes up, and there's seven cords around him, and guards bust in. He breaks free and destroys the Philistines. And she's like, Samson, if you loved me, you would let me bind you. <laughs> she's like, if you loved me, Samson, you would tell me the secret of your strength so I could afflict you. I mean, that is the most manipulative, weirdest, you know, relationship I've ever seen. And so he tells her another lie. He's like, well, listen, just all you need to do is bind me with new cords. And if you bind with new cords, I can't get out of that. And she binds with new cords and the Philistines come upon him again. And he be breaks free. He beats them up. And she's like, you really don't love me, do you? If you loved me, you would let me bind you so I could afflict you. And this is some weird, messed up relationship stuff going on. So he, he gets a little bit closer. He's like, listen, just braid my hair. And if you braid my hair, I, I can't break free and they'll destroy me. She braids his hair. The guards bust in. And then he beats him up and wins again. Finally, she's like, you've lied to me three times. You really don't love me. And then he goes, okay, fine. Just cut my hair and I'll have no more power. He's just, I guess, tired of her nagging. I don't know. But he's like, hey, just cut my hair and I'm done. Here, here's the point, though. It's just compromise. He's like, he finally kind of got to the hair part. It's just a little bit of compromise, a little bit of compromise, a little bit of compromise, and it led to, as you know the story goes, his eyes being plucked out and a tragic death. My point being, we see the Bible being filled with stories of compromise. This church was filled with compromise. There was a lot of things they had right, but the compromise creeped in and it led to a lot of pain. It led to a very harsh warning from Jesus. We have a lot to learn from the church when it comes to compromise. One author, his name's Daniel Levy, says, compromise has been a cancer in the church from its conception. Maybe you've seen this or experienced this. We've seen compromise in all different shapes and sizes. It can be in leadership. It can be just in the common people. It can be just followers of Jesus, the decisions, our theology, our beliefs, our lifestyle, our practices. We just compromise a little bit over time and we go, how did we end up here? It's crazy how small compromise is just one degree off and you're not in a completely different direction. You know, I think A.W. Tozer, that one of those fiery, classic, old-school preachers, said it best. He says, A new Decalogue has been adopted by the neo-Christians of our day. Thou shalt not disagree. And a new set of Beatitudes, too. Blessed are they that tolerate everything, for they shall not be made accountable. You know, we live in a moment where the virtue of the day is tolerance, and I, I suggest to you that tolerance is not enough. We can't just tolerate people's life. Like, if we love someone, we go, I love you too much to tolerate something in your life that is self-destructive. I love you too much to tolerate a belief that has taken you astray from God. Like, love to me is so much more than tolerance. Love is, I will stand up to you. I love you. I'll speak truth to you. Because I love you, I can't just pamper you into a lie. I'm going to speak up. I'm going to speak into you. I'm going to challenge you when you need to be challenged. I'm going to encourage you when you need to be encouraged. I think we, we don't need the virtue of tolerance. We need the virtue of love a love that is biblical love, a Christ-centered love, an agape love, an unconditional love. My point being is the church too often, sadly, has compromised. And whether that's the church collectively or the church as individuals when we come together, there's a lot of compromise. And it's a lot, done a lot of damage to marriages, to relationships, to our children, just to the common observer of those who aren't Christians and saying, look at the church. They're a bunch of hypocrites and jokes because compromise has slowly bled in and so listen, guys, Jesus speaks to the church that compromises, and he encourages them, but there's a harsh and very challenging word and an opportunity to repent.
So let's just break this down. Can we do that? You guys ready? Yeah? All right. Let's look. It's number one. We're going to look at the, the uh, description or the destination. Number one, look at verse 12. He says, and to the angel of the church of Pergamos writes. So let's stop there. Uh, we do this every week. Jesus speaks directly to one of the cities, to one of the churches. We'll put the map up here for you just to get an idea. We first looked at Ephesus, Ephesus being on the coast, and then Smyrna, and then Pergamos. Pergamos is in modern-day Turkey. We've talked about this. This is in Asia, or the Bible might call it Asia Minor or Asia. Uh, Pergamos, or Pergamum, uh, this is a city about 65 miles north of Ephesus, 15 miles inland. Uh, this was, like the other couple of cities, an incredible city, a beautiful city, a wealthy city. Pergamum actually had the second largest library in the world after Alexandria. Uh, they had over 200,000 books in their library. Now think about that. When you don't have a printing press, that's a lot of books. The second biggest library. They valued education. They valued learning. There's actually a story where the uh, librarian of Pergamum tried to recruit the librarian of Alexandria. The king of Egypt finds out, gets furious, and says, we're cutting off all sorts of papyrus from you, and what you write on. No more papyrus for you. And so actually Pergamum came up with a parchment and writing on animal skins, and we got parchment from Pergamum. Uh, and so they kind of were innovative because of that. And so again, they valued education. There's a ton of history here. There was, de there was temples everywhere dedicated to different Roman and Greek gods. Some of those gods, we'll put them up here. Uh, you have temples dedicated to Dionysus, Athena, Asclepius, and Zeus. Uh, you have the god of wine, the god of war, the god of medicine, and just Zeus. You could say the god of the gods. You kind of had like temples everywhere dedicated to these gods. So a lot of pagan worship. There's a lot of gods there being worshipped. So imagine Christians now come on the scene and they say, hey, there's only one true god. All right, they're not a very liked people group here. They're not very like, oh, I like those Christians. They like to tell all of us that we're wrong. Like, they don't like them, all right? They kind of stand out a little bit. Uh, Pergamum, again, by Pliny. Pliny was an old historian. Here's what he said about them. I thought this was pretty cool. He says, by far, Pergamum is the most distinguished city in Asia. By far, this was the most distinguished city in Asia. This was actually the first uh, city in Asia where it was considered like Rome's uh, the capital outside of Rome was in, in Pergamum. Just a fascinating city. Here's what's interesting. You can actually right now go to, there's something called the Pergamum Museum in Berlin. You can go to this museum currently in Berlin, and they actually have an altar to Zeus from Pergamum. There's a picture here. There's a, so there's a museum. It's a Pergamum Museum. I mean, just filled with artifacts from this city. And there, in this museum, there's this altar of Zeus. They actually went there to Pergamum. They pulled it up. It's like basically in ruins, and they had the guys put it back together. And there you can see the altar of Zeus. I mean, this was considered not one of the seven, but a wonder of the ancient world. Just the altar of Zeus, his temple. Tons of sacrifices were offered here. The point being, this was a very religious, a very wealthy city. They were obsessed with health. There were different spas and springs and baths there. Like I said, they worshiped the god of Asclepius, like the god of medicine. People had just weird different beliefs where they would go into his temple and try to sleep over there overnight. They'd release non-venomous snakes into the temple, and if the snakes crawled over you or touched you in their mind, you're, you're going to be healed now. There's, they're a very just interesting group of people, and then here's the Christians, right? And they're like, hey, we're here to make an impact for Jesus in this city. Now, I want to I point out something. In verse 13, Jesus described this city. Listen to this. He says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And then later in verse 13, he'd say, where Satan dwells. Jesus called Pergamum, the city, where Satan's throne is, and he called it the city where Satan dwells. 
Um, this is interesting. If you've ever just been on mission trips, you know, this, okay, this just seemed to be a city that was a stronghold of Satan's. You know, if you've ever been on a mission trip or been to a different city where you go, man, there's just something different here. Maybe you've been overseas and you go, man, there's just a stronghold of Satan here. In a sense, like it's heavier here. It just feels different here. I mean, most people would interpret this as maybe this is where Satan truly dwelt. Satan is not omnipresent. Satan cannot be everywhere at once. He has to pick a certain point in time in history and a location to live and dwell in. It's believed by most scholars that Jesus calling it where Satan's throne is and where Satan dwells. They say it's pretty clear that this is truly where Satan was doing his work at that time. And imagine being the church there. You're like, oh, I'm the church where Satan lives? Yeah, that's our church. Like, imagine being that church. And, and I do love this. I really love this thought because they go, Jesus is like, hey, I know, I know. Satan dwells there. His throne is there. But my church dwells there. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Like, I love this. I love this encouragement to the church. And Jesus is like, I see you. You're in a tough culture to be in. You're in a tough city to be in. That's actually where Satan dwells. I don't know if you know that. Like, oh, fun fact, right? Like, that's being told from Jesus. And he's like, you know what? You're there too. My bride is there too. And I love this city. And I love this place. And I love you guys. So I want you to just, this is the destination. This is who Jesus is speaking to. Now, let's look at number two, the description of Jesus. Because this is always interesting to me. Look at verse 12. What does he go on to say? The description. Jesus says, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Jesus describes himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Um, I don't want Jesus to describe himself that way to me. Uh, he doesn't always describe himself in this way. It's always a different description. But Jesus goes, hey, 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 Pergamum, don't forget, I'm the guy that has the sharp two-edged sword. You're like, what is that? Keep in mind, Jesus was always referring to himself out of something already spoken of in Revelation 1. So he always describes himself with a description in Revelation 1. What is that? Look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 16. It says, out of Jesus' mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Stay with me. Just the description of Jesus is, out of my mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. Hey, Pergamum, I'm the one that has that two-edged sword. The idea of it, listen to this, it's not the sword is in his hand, it's out of his mouth. Why is this important? He goes, my word is what brings judgment. The idea is, I'm not coming with a sword in my hand, but the, the sword is in my mouth. The Bible talks about how the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, how it, it can discern between the intents and motives of my heart, of your heart. The Bible talks about the sword or the Bible being like a sword and that it brings judgment. Jesus says very clearly in John chapter 5 that we're not going to be judged according to how other people did, but we're going to be judged according to your word and your word only. That the word of God is what brings judgment. That is my standard, is the word of God. Jesus goes on and says, I am the word of God. I am the logos. I am the very word of God. But what I want to bring out to us is um, what he's communicating is, listen, church, you're going astray. You're compromising. Um, my word's going to be, be your judgment. I'm the one who has the sword. I don't really want Jesus to describe himself to, to me that way. Like, you know, but some of us need this perspective of Jesus. I don't know why, again, I just sometimes think we have like the, the four gospel perspective of Jesus. Like, oh, Jesus walking around carrying a lamb, like long flowing hair. Like we need to see Jesus, the one who's like, no, no, I'm the one bearing the sword. You know, Revelation 19.15 says this about the sword. It says, now out of Jesus' mouth, again, it says this, goes a sharp two-edged sword, that with it he should strike the nations. Again, speaking of judgment of Jesus saying, my word is the great authority. Guys, this is why we study the word, we love the word, we preach the word, we talk about the word. This is why we gather together around the word. We say this is the inerrant, infallible word of God. We say that God's word has all authority in my life. It's not my opinion, it's not my thoughts. Your job, my job, is explore the word of God and see what it says. You're not here to believe what pop culture might say or what my opinion even is. You say, God, what is your word? Uh, I wanna know your word. We wanna study your word. It's your word that is that sword. 
The Bible is also described as like a scalpel at different times. Like it uses a different word for sword in Ephesians 6, like a smaller sword, which God can do surgery on us. God can kind of fix those areas in our life that need fixing. But all at the same time, uh, we should know it in that way first before we have to know it as the sword in this way. And so listen, the sword is the word of God. And, and Jesus says, hey, 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 you haven't kept my word. He reminds him of that by the description. Let's keep going. So you have the destination, the description. Now look at the praise he has for this church. Uh, would you read verse 13 with me? Here's what Jesus says. He says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast in my name and do not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. I want you to hear the praise or the, how Jesus commends them. First of all, again, he goes, I know your works. I know where you dwell. He says, I know where you live. I don't know why I think that's funny. I love that. This is not like in a threatening way. Like if someone says, yo, yo, I know where you live. I'm like, oh my gosh. Jesus is like, hey, I know where you dwell. I know where you live. He's like, I know, I see the chaos amongst you. This is where Satan's throne is, where, where he dwells. I, I know where you live. Jesus is really pointing out, and this is encouraging to me because Jesus always says, I know something about them. Jesus knows where we live. Jesus knows where we are. Jesus knows where we are personally with him. He knows where we're at. He knows where you're at right now with him. He knows if you're walking with him. He knows if you're far from him. He knows the context and time period in which you live. Like, he gets that. He knows the temptations we face. He knows the trials we face. He knows what our cultural moment is. He knows. It brings me comfort to know that. It's not like Jesus is like, oh my gosh, this is a curveball. I've never seen this on human history. Like, Jesus knows. He's seen it. He's with us. And he has two things he specifically says, good job. Look at those two things. Again, we'll put them up here just so you can see it. He says, you've held fast to my name, and you did not deny his faith. He's like, this is what you do well, guys. You held fast to my name, did not deny my faith. You held fast to his name. It's another way of just saying you've been loyal to me. He's saying you've been loyal to the gospel. Like, I think about this. Make this connection. He goes, I know where you dwell, and you've had fa you've hold fast to my name. Like, I know where you're living, and you've still been faithful to me. I think this is something, this is so beautiful. We as followers of Jesus need staying power. Like, there's something about staying in a very evil culture, in a very evil moment. Like, think about this again. He goes, you live where Satan lives, and I know where you live. There's something beautiful about those who hold fast to his name in a very wicked moment and time period. You know, I have talked to people, and I, I just want to lovingly listen and understand where they're at. They're like, yo, yo, we're out of South Florida. We're going to, we're going to Carolinas. I mean, this place is way too evil. My kids can't be raised here. And I'm like, hey, you know, that's okay. Like, I get that. I get that. Totally. And that, but when the decision is based off fear of the city, fear of evil, when it's based off that this is wicked, wickedness is everywhere. Wickedness is everywhere. My, my point, there's something about saying, holding fast to Jesus' name in every culture, in every climate, everywhere. There's something beautiful about that. So we're going to hold fast. No matter where we're at. Like, we're going to hold fast to Jesus' name. Think about this, too. They held fast to Jesus' name. Let's just talk about Jesus' name. Jesus' name is powerful. You know, Philippians 2 says every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, what? That Jesus is Lord. Acts 4 says there's no salvation in any other name other than the name of Jesus. We pray in the name of Jesus. There's something about praying in the name of Jesus, calling upon the name of Jesus, communicating the name of Jesus. That we have nothing like, we as followers of Jesus should not be afraid of the name, not just the name Jesus, but everything behind the name, who he is, what he's done. Like, that the name Jesus is the name that every knee will bow, the name that people swear and curse, they're going to one day bow their knee to that name. There's something powerful about the name of Jesus. He goes, you've held fast to my name, I commend you for that. You've not been ashamed of my name, I commend you for that. I would love for us to be a people that says, like, we're going to cling to the name of Jesus. Everything it stands for, everything it does. And then he says this, you did not deny my faith. And I want to point this out. Do you notice that? Circle that. 
He actually says, my faith. I don't know why, but I love that. He goes, you've not denied my faith. We're told in Hebrews 12 that uh, he is the author and finisher of our faith, but he, and this is actually his faith. Like, there's just something about that. We're saved by God's grace through God's faith. Like, it's, it's, everything's his. Like, he goes, man, you've, you've held fast to my name, to my faith, and then I want to keep going with this. But he, he points out a guy named Antipas. Now, he's like, even Antipas, my faithful martyr. The question is, who is Antipas? Like, we don't really know. There's a lot of speculation about Antipas. It's believed that he's the first person martyred for the name of Jesus in Pergamum. He's the first person to die for his faith in this specific city. And he goes, you've been faithful, and Antipas is a great example of that. He died for my name. Now, uh, Antipas, look at this title. So it's Revelation chapter 2. We just read it. Antipas, my faithful martyr. This is the exact same title Jesus used of himself in Revelation 1. This word faithful martyr. In Revelation 1.5, listen. It says, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. In the Greek, this is the same word. Antipas was my faithful witness, my faithful martyr. Jesus is called the faithful martyr, the faithful witness. Stay with me. Antipas gets the same title that Jesus got. He says, from Jesus, my faithful martyr. In the Greek, martyr and witness is the same thing, and I think this is so important. You guys, we are called to be witnesses for Christ. The word is martyrs for Christ. We're called to be martyrs for Christ. There are those who are truly martyred, meaning they've died on behalf of Jesus. But we're all called to be martyrs. That means witness. We're all called to be witnesses of Christ. Maybe you, you might not ever be martyred, like death, but maybe you've kind of felt that. Maybe you felt like social death from standing up for Jesus. You kind of felt that like in your, your friend group, like, aren't you a Christian? Like, yeah, you are a martyr. You are a witness. That is the term used. By the way, Jesus is called the faithful martyr. Jesus died so you and I could live. Jesus was martyred, murdered first for us so you and I could have everlasting life. Antipas, this guy who's faithful to the end, gets the same title that Jesus had, gave himself in 1.5. He goes, Antipas, my faithful martyr, my faithful witness. There's something about being a faithful witness. Listen, um, we talked a lot about persecution last week, so I won't get too much into it. But 90% of the world that dies for their beliefs, so 90% of people that die for religious beliefs are Christians. Out of all the people that die for the religious beliefs, 90% of them are followers of Jesus. This is, this is the, the, the recent centuries, recent decades. My, my point is, there's going to be times our faith is challenged. We talked about this last week, I know. But there's times we've got to realize, like, my faith and your faith and we put to the test. There will be moments it's incredibly difficult to stand for Jesus. You know, there's there's going to be moments it's going to be really hard to stand for Jesus. I just want to put this up here so you can see this. Listen, it's hardest to stand when it costs me the most. It's really hard to stand for Jesus when it's going to cost you. Like, following Jesus might cost you friends, might cost you a job, might cost you a career. Following Jesus might cost you a lot. It's going to be hard to stand when it costs you the most. But this is what the church did. They're faithful today. This is what Antipas did. Listen, it's hardest to stand when no one finds out. I think this has two meanings. It's really hard to stand when you go, if I give into this, no one's going to know anyways. Like, no one's going to see. It's not going to hurt. Any, like, they're not going to know. But listen, that's when we need to stand. That's what the Bible would call integrity. But the idea is like, hey, there's going to be t- points and times you might have an opportunity to sin or go away from Jesus. This is when it's going to be hard to stand. I would say stand. It's going to be hard also, conversely, it's going to be hard to stand when you go, man, I just took a bold stand for Jesus, and I'm not going to go tell everyone about it. It's going to be hard like Stanford. Like, no one's going to pat you on the back. No one's going to say good job. That just might not happen until heaven, until you're with Jesus. It's going to be hard to stand when no one's there, when no one finds out. And lastly, it's hardest to stand when it's least popular. I just want to be really clear here. It's, it's really hard to stand when you're not the majority. Like, I want to say this, church. I think we're actually in a beautiful, opportunistic moment 
where followers of Jesus are not the majority. And for some, this freaks us out. I would say, but can I tell you culturally, historically, this is when the church has thrived? It's usually when the church has been the minority, it's backs up against the wall, where they've had to go, we got to rethink how we do things. Like, can't, we can't just keep doing things the way we've been doing them. we got to approach and love our community better. we got to love the world better. we got to be followers of Jesus where it's so attractive, like, I want what they have. It's so beautiful what's happening that the world looks on us and says, we want that. We need that. Like, we live in a moment, I read this book called Creative Minority, The Creative Minority, um, by a guy named John Tyson. He talks about this. He talks about different movements throughout the last couple thousand years. He goes, it's when Christians have been the small minority, they've stepped up, they've had to be innovative, they've had to be creative. They've had to kind of approach their culture differently and say, we can't do things from a majority perspective, which doesn't necessarily change hearts. We need, like, a, a spirit encounter, this, a, an encounter from God himself to move. We need God to show up and do something very unique. And I say, listen, this is a beautiful chance for us. I really do believe in general. Like followers of Jesus, we live in a moment where we say, you know what, we're going to make the most for the name of Jesus. I'm going to be known for, being, for my love for Jesus, my love for others. Everything else is secondary. Like we, have a, we live in a moment right now where we can say, you know what, even if we don't, we're not the majority, that's a beautiful thing. Like let's take advantage of that. Let's press into that. It's hardest to stand when it's least popular. Now listen, with this, Jesus goes, I see the good things. He rebukes them. He calls them out. And this is where I want us to hear that Jesus was speaking to us. Look at this. It's, it's actually in verse uh, 14. Here's what Jesus says. He says, but I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrines of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. All right, two things. What does Jesus have against them? He says, but there's a few things I have against you. Here's the two things he names. They hold the doctrine of Balaam and there are some there who held the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. What is that? What's going on? Let me give you some context. There's, uh, when you read the New Testament, you need to know the Old Testament. That's just a fun fact, right? Uh, there's a story in Numbers 22 through Numbers 24, three chapters in the book of Numbers that deal with Balaam and Balak. So let me kind of give you a refresher in case, like, what's the story? Uh, if you remember, the nation of Israel are brought out of Egypt. They're wandering. They're in the wilderness. They're kind of in this wandering period. The king of Moab sees them. He's freaked out thinking they're going to overtake us. So Balak, everyone say Balak. Balak, K, ends with K, king. This is how I do it. Balak is the king. He goes to Balaam, M, man, prophet. I don't know if this helps. This is how I do it. But he goes to man, the man, Balaam. He goes to the prophet. Everyone say Balaam too. Balaam. So Balak goes to Balaam and says, listen, I know you're a prophet from God. These people are coming to our land. I need you to curse them. Balaam is, he's one of the most interesting guys in the Bible to me because he's truly a prophet of God. But you're going to see that he's compromising and he allows greed and money to kind of get in his heart. He goes, listen, I can't go with you. I can't curse these people. These people are God's people. I can't do that. And so Balaam goes back to Balaam and goes, listen, what if I give you more money? He goes, you know, I think God's called me to do that. So Balak gets Balaam to go with him. So Balaam, if you remember, he's tra traveling to go to like, curse the nation of Israel. He's on his donkey. And as he's going, the donkey, if you remember, like goes to the left. And he's like, what are you doing, donkey? He gets mad at this donkey, right? What's, what's happening? The donkey sees this angel in front of him. And so he pulls his back donkey back on the path. And the donkey goes again, and he crushes his master's foot. He crushes Balaam's foot against the rock. And then, like, Balaam just hits his donkey. And the donkey goes, ow! Like, why'd you do that? Haven't I always been a good donkey to you? He's like, no, you're taking me. And I don't know why. This is like one of the funniest stories in the Bible to me. He's having this conversation with his donkey. And he's like, if you knew what was in front of you, there's an angel ready to kill you. And then the angel's like, yeah, actually, I, I was about to kill you. You have a really good donkey. I don't know why. This is like the best story. 
And so he's talking to his donkey. I love my pastor back in California. He used to always say this because he could get away with it. He's like, listen, if God can speak through an Old King James Version donkey, um, God can speak through anyone. If you don't know what Old King James Version donkey is, you can look it up. Um, but he's like, hey, if God can speak through a donkey, God can speak through anyone. So God, he has this weird encounter with the donkey, the angel. Eventually he goes, and here's Balaam uh, really overlooking the nation of Israel. And he tries to curse them. Every time he goes to curse them, what comes out? A blessing. He blesses them over and over again. And it's beautiful because there's actually messianic prophecies, prophecies about the Messiah in there. He, he, he tries to curse them, but he blesses them. I love this because what the enemy means for evil, God means for good. And so he goes to curse them. He can't get out of his mouth. He's like, and he just turns to blessing. And so he blesses them and blesses them over and over again. And then he goes, I can't, I can't. He goes, Balak, I cannot curse them. So what happens? He goes, I have some really good advice though. You know, here's all you need to do. Send your woman, your, your Moabite or your Midianite women, send them into the camps, sleep with the men. Their God's a good God. Their God's a jealous God. He wants all, he, he deserves all of it. God's gonna punish them. Watch what happens. He'll, they'll turn, the women will turn the men's hearts after their gods. And so Balak goes, that's really good advice. Sends his women to the camp, sleep with the men. The men are like, oh, tell me more about your gods. And we're told that that day, 24,000 men of Israel died. Why do we bring this all up? Because here's what the author of Revelation, here's what Jesus is saying. What, the, what Balaam was to the nation of Israel, the Nicolaitans are to the church, which is just a little bit of compromise coming in, just a little bit of seduction coming in. I can't curse them, but I can, I can seduce them. Here's what happened. Satan's realizing persecution led to more followers of Jesus. So I can't beat them, I'm going to join them. I can't beat them out, I'm going to join the church. So you see happening is Satan then basically joining the church, seducing the church. You see, the Nicolaitans were most likely those group of people that said, your body and your spirit are different, so you know what? Worship God on Sundays and go sleep with the temple prostitutes that we have here in Pergamum. That's okay, because your body and spirit are different. Justify your sin. And he's saying, hey, the Nicolaitans are doing exactly what Balaam did. It was money, it was greed, it was idolatry, it was sexual sin. And he goes, we cannot compromise in those things. Notice twice he says the doctrine of Balaam, and then he says the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. The issue was they had bad doctrine. I think that's very interesting. 37 times in the New Testament, the Bible uses that word doctrine, saying doctrine matters. You guys, church, what you believe matters. If someone says to you, doctrine doesn't matter, that's a doctrinal statement. Like that statement itself is a doctrine. Like doctrine doesn't matter. I'm like, is that what you live by? That's your doctrine. Like it matters. Doctrine matters. Your belief about God dictates your behavior. Belief and behavior go hand in hand. Doctrine matters a lot. Jesus goes, listen, church, you're embracing thoughts and ideas that are not from me. Your, your behaviors, your lifestyle, you're compromising, and it's going to lead to a lot of pain like it did for the nation of Israel. It's going to lead to a lot of hurt like it did for, for what Balaam and the, the people. He goes, don't compromise. So listen, we as a church cannot compromise on a lot of different topics. We cannot compromise when it comes to the idea of marriage. We cannot compromise when it comes to the idea of gender. We cannot compromise on these topics. God created us male and female from the beginning. God, this is not a social construct. God made us in his image. God made you and I, male and female, in his image he made us. It's a beautiful thing. And we don't want to lessen the things God has made. We're not going to compromise on some of those things. We can't. It's led to too much pain and heartbreak in marriages and families and children. There's so many different topics we could go into. We can't compromise when it comes to our view of power, of authority. That those of us who view ourselves as leaders, we're going to come with a servant's heart. We cannot do power the way the world does power. We cannot do sex the way the world does sex. We cannot do marriage the way the world does marriage. We cannot do that. We cannot compromise in that. There are some things as a church we just cannot. We cannot intertwine it and say, obviously Jesus Christ believes postmodern secular culture in the 21st century. That's obviously been his heart from the very beginning. Like, no, we cannot compromise in that. 
There's just certain things that the church has got embedded with that we cannot get embedded with. They say we want to be known by Jesus and for Jesus. That Jesus is going to have a rightful view when it comes to my politics, my lifestyle, everything. I want to be known for just loving Jesus, serving Jesus, interpreting everything through the gospel of Jesus. This is how we're going to do it. Everything comes to submission to him. Listen, I believe the church loses its prophetic witness when we begin to compromise with the world. When we do exactly what the world is doing and talk exactly the way the world is talking, we've lost that saltiness Jesus describes. We've lost that difference that Jesus talks about. One way to put it is, listen, Satan wants to destroy the church by infiltrating the church with the world's values. The sa- Satan's trying to say, I want you to take the world's values and make the church's values. We can't do that. We're saying, Jesus, you know why? Because when we do it your way, though none go with us, though it's difficult, it's led to um, better mental health, better marriages, better outcome, when we truly denied our flesh, put our desires aside for the sake of the gospel and others, like it's led to, just, uh, Jesus, your commandments are, are the way to life, as David would talk about in the Psalms. Your commandments brings life. We're just going to do this differently than the way the world has done it. But let's just make this personal for a second, you guys, because this is not like the church out there or that, that other, like we're not here to speak poorly of other people, other churches, like let's go, where's the compromise in my life? Like, God, what are you doing to me? I, I just want to throw some questions out there and let the Lord search you really quick. And please stay with me. Here's just a one question. Is your identity right now formed more by Christ or culture? Why? Or why not? Or how? Is right now your belief system, your values, being formed by Christ or by culture? Like, do, do, are, you, are you forming your worldview from tweets you're reading, from Facebook posts, from the news article? Like, what's forming your worldview? Is it that or is it scripture? Is it community? Is it praying? Is it fasting? Is it the Christian practices we've had for centuries? Like, what is it? What is forming your perspective right now? What is forming your identity right now? What you think about life, what you think about sex, what you think about everything and anything, what is forming that? Number two, here's a question. Have you started a compromise in your life? Like, is there right now a compromise you kind of embrace and let in? Like, is there some sort of compromise in your life? You're like, I've I've been entertaining this, now I'm kind of, I'm giving myself over to it. Like, what is that? What would the Holy Spirit say to you and me right now? Like, I can joke about Reese's and say, oh, it's Reese's. Like, that's the funny, easy thing, right? But like, the Holy Spirit's saying, Josiah, this is an area of your life. This is what I want to address and speak into. This, is, this little thing is going to lead to a lot of pain later. You've got you to cut it out now. Cut it out before it grows. What would the Lord say to you in that way? Another question. You know, are you compromising doctrinally? Here's what I mean by that. You can find a book on any topic, and it will firm your belief system. I've read a lot of theological books that, that will take a stance that's, that's commonplace to culture. If you want to find a book that will affirm everything, you can find You can find 10 professors who will agree with you, but I would say do the work yourself. Search the Word of God yourself. I would say when you go to this person as your ultimate authority, or you're going to Scripture as your ultimate authority. You can find a book on anything to affirm anything, and I would say you need to go to Scripture to let it affirm your beliefs. Amen? I'll say the next question is, are you someone who professes faith are you profess, you professes in faith in Jesus, and is that observed by others? So when you say, I follow Jesus, but can the world say, yeah, you follow Jesus? Can they see that in you and me? Do we just proclaim these things where people say, I see Jesus in you? And just here's the last thing. Um, when and how did you compromise? Uh, when and how did the compromise sneak into your life? So um, I want you to think back. At what point in time did that compromise sneak in where Jesus became second place? Like, what, what happens? It's funny, a lot of my, you know, and I get this. A lot of our worldview is shaped by the people we love, their experiences. And we go, but my best friend is a follower of Jesus, and this is their experience. And is that shaping your view? 
I mean, I want you to think about the things that we affirm because the people we love affirm those things, but is that what Christ affirms? Is that what Scripture talks about? My thing is all of this has to go to Scripture, it has to go to Jesus. And so we're going to affirm it and go to him in that way. Listen, here's what Jesus says to them now. He goes, I have a few things against you. He names them. And now here we get to number five. He warns them. Here's the warning, verse 16. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Just hear that for a second. Um, if Jesus picks a fight with you, you're not going to win, right? Like if, if you go, oh man, I can't believe they're getting into it. And you're like, them is fighting words. That is a fighting word. He's like, I'm going to fight against you. He goes, repent. That is crazy. Or else I will come to you quickly and, let me say this, you don't want Jesus to say this to you. I mean, I, you know, there's a lot of people I don't want to start a fight with, but definitely not Jesus, right? He's like, repent or else I'm going to come to you quickly. And that sword of my mouth is coming. Listen, but let me just point this out. There's a beautiful thing here. He gives you an out. He says, repent. You know, Jesus obviously he doesn't want to come and bring judgment. He, he came and brought grace. He came and brought salvation. He came and brought new life. He goes, repent. Take what I've already offered. Or else, if you don't, I have to bring judgment. Because here's the idea. Jesus took my judgment on the cross. Jesus took the judgment and the sin of the world on the cross. If you're not believing that and accept that and walk in that, then you're going to take your own judgment. Jesus took the wrath of God already for me. Why would I take it again? I don't need to take the wrath of God. Jesus already took that for me. But if you don't want to believe in that, choose that, walk in that, he goes, man, the wrath of God would be poured out. I'm going to come to you with a sword. You know, again, this repentance idea is it's not like, oh, this is for people who don't believe in Jesus. This is for Christians. Like, this is for us. It's those areas in our life we've kind of like just gone astray a little bit, and God's like, repent. What are you doing? Why are you flirting with compromise? You know what it leads to. Like, really, right now, you know those areas in your life where you're compromising. God's like, what are you doing? What, what good has compromise ever led to, biblically? What good has it done in your marriage, in your thought life, in your purity, in just the way you do, you, you do life? He's basically giving us an out and saying, repent. This is beautiful. And I don't want to get like too weird with these points, but listen, next is that promise. And I'm so thankful for the promises in Scripture. I mean, this promise is threefold. It's like beautiful what he says. Let's just read the end in verse uh, 617. He says this. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. This is the promise. Now, I love this. This is three promises mentioned. Let's just start with the hidden manna. He goes, hey, if you overcome, if you repent, if you give up those compromises, if you turn from your sin, I'm going to give you some hidden manna. And you're like, what's so cool about that? Oh, no, I, I love this. Um, I'm going to give you some hidden manna. What, what's hidden manna? Here's the idea. Remember when um, uh, they got the Ark of the Covenant and they put Moses' or Aaron's rod in there, his staff in there, and it budded. They put the Ten Commandments in there. They actually put a bowl of manna in there. Now, what is manna? Manna was that sweet, heavenly bread that the nation of Israel woke up to every morning. When they're wandering the wilderness, like, we have nothing to eat. They'd wake up, and there was manna on the ground. The Bible describes the manna, it's interesting, it's like white, circular, very sweet tasting. I don't know. It was like angel food cake, truly from heaven. Like, they'd wake up, and God's like, go get the manna. And they get the manna, it was sweet, it was delicious. Eventually, they got sick of it and started complaining, and then other stuff started happening. But it was heavenly food from God. And I don't know, I love this. I love that God's promises have been related to food. We've talked about it already. One was like, you get the tree of life. This is like, you get some manna. I'm like, awesome. Like, I get some banana bread. I love it. I don't know. It, it's incredible that God, like, I know knows us, made us a certain way because, hey, you'll get some hidden manna. Think about it this way. The Ark of the Covenant had this bowl of hidden manna. And the phrase hidden manna makes it, do you think it's actually from the Ark of the Covenant itself, like the hidden manna? 
the idea that, hey, goes, if you overcome, Jesus will take this manna, and just like he multiplied the bread, he's going to multiply this manna, and you're going to eat some of God's heavenly bread. Either way, others say this. No, Jesus in John 6 said, I am the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the manna. I am the bread that comes down, Jesus said. Others say, no, no, this, this hidden manna is Jesus. Like just like communion, we eat of Jesus, we're reminded of Jesus, we partake, and we celebrate the person of Jesus. Others say, no, this hidden manna is you get Jesus. Like this, this, this heavenly manna, this heavenly food. Yeah, it could be this, truly we get manna from the Ark of the Covenant, or this new manna, this hidden manna. But again, again, I just love the Bible. I love how God knows how we're made. I mentioned to you that book uh, called Heaven by Randy Alcorn, and he has a chapter on eating in heaven. And I don't know why it's like my favorite chapter in the whole bo- book. Just like, man, God knows how we're made. And God knows that sweet, delightful things, that's good. He goes, you'll get that. Now let's just keep going, but he goes, you'll get a white stone. This is beautiful to me. There's a lot of ideas. What is this white stone with this new name written on it? Um, here's the idea. A white stone at times was given, and it was called, this word is called a, a, a tessera or a ticket. You would get a white stone when royalty would admit you into their presence for a feast. So there'd be times that the, the king would go, you want to be invited to my party? Here's your ticket. It's this white stone. You show up with this white stone. And you go, and there's something on it to go, I'm invited to the party. And the idea was, no, Jesus gives us this white stone to say, hey, you are invited into the party of God. You're invited to this heavenly party. Marriage 19 talks about the marriage feast of the lamb, again, food. But we'll sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we'll, we'll just eat a meal. The idea is that we're invited to this heavenly feast. You go, what's the promise from God? I don't know, God promises that we're invited to this heavenly party, this white stone. Others refer back to say, no, the white stone refers to this. Uh, white stones in this empire at this time in certain cities, if you were guilt, if committed, you know, they charged you for a crime and you went to court and you were acquitted of that crime, and they said you're innocent, you didn't commit the qu- crime, they would give you a white stone. So you're, you did something, or supposedly, you go to court, you're acquitted, and then the judge would say, here's your white stone, you're innocent. And here's the idea, Jesus gives white stone to say you're innocent. You've been acquitted of all the sins you've ever committed. The point being that Jesus, or even in this time, they'd give you a black stone if you're found guilty. Here's a black stone, you're guilty. And here's the idea. Jesus took the black stone so we could take the white stone. Jesus, I'll take the sin, I'll take the punishment, I'll take the judgment so you could be forgiven. He goes, you want to know what happens to those who repent? One knows what happens when those who get right with me, who don't compromise anymore? You get a white stone, you're acquitted of all your sins. I took on the sin of the world so you could be acquitted. Jesus goes, you're forgiven, you're acquitted. And then I want you to hear this last phrase. You'll get a new name written on it. I don't know why I love this so much. He says, a new name which no one will know except like you and God. Like I love that between us and God, there's like an inside thing happening. Like, think about that. You're like a best friend. You have like an inside, like you make a joke and you're like, yo, what's that joke? And you're like, don't worry about it. It's just our inside thing. Like you have that with God. God's like, yo, yo, shh, that's, that's your name. Well, you know that. Like I love that. Like you have a name. And I just think about this, like God, you'll give me a new name. What does a new name mean? You have a new identity. You know, you think about Jacob, who is the heel catcher, the deceiver. He wrestles with God, and God's like, you're, you're Israel. You're governed by me, man. Like, I owned you in that wrestling match. You're governed by me. I just love the idea of names in the Bible. Names communicates a whole new identity, a whole new purpose, a whole new value. I wonder, like, honestly, what that name would be in heaven for myself, for you guys. Like, if you ever come, you're told you're given a new name. Like, here's what I think. I honestly think we'll get that name and go, that's exactly the name I needed, Jesus. Like, Jesus will speak over you in such a way, you go, how'd you know I needed that name? I've been searching for this name. I've been searching for this identity. And you get it and you go, thank you, Jesus. Only me and you know that. I get this inside thing with, with God. I get this inside scoop. I get some hidden manna. I get a white stone. I'm acquitted in a new name written on it. This new identity I have that God knows. That this thing I was searching for my whole life, Jesus is summarizing, here's your new name. 
I call you this. Maybe certain people have identified you a certain way, called you a certain name. Jesus goes, no, no, here's the name I give you. What a beautiful promise. The, the point is, church, we're playing with fire when we start to compromise in our doctrine, in our personal life. And I, I would love for myself, for all of you here, to experience that promise of he who overcomes, hidden manna, white stone, new name. What a beautiful promise for, for this church and for the churches that have an ear to hear. Let us be a church that has an ear to hear. Amen.